Okay, good morning. It's always wonderful to hear stories of what God's been doing in people's lives. Uh, I thought it was beautiful at the end there where Wei Chi started her story by saying one of her doubts was she couldn't hear or touch God and then she finished her story by saying how God had spoken to her through the Bible. I thought that was really powerful because I don't know about you, sometimes I can feel like oh, I'm desperate to hear God's direction for my life. I want to hear his voice, but we can open up the word and God speaks to us. And that's what we're going to do now. So if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to the book of Daniel, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. We've been going through the book of Daniel the last few months and we're in chapter 5. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses and then I'll pray. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are 
a God who speaks, that you're not a dead God made of gold or silver, iron, wood or stone, but you are a God who's alive, who speaks, and this morning we want to hear your voice, and we want these words to speak powerfully into our hearts and change us to help us to become more like you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we can see in this story, as we've been following through the back of, book of Daniel, so far, Daniel and his friends, they've been taken into to exile. The Babylonians had invaded Jerusalem, taken a few of the Jews, the Israelites, back to their capital in Babylon and had trained them in their ways. King Nebuchadnezzar had been the central figure through this story. Uh, but we've kind of jumped forward a little bit in time. And king Nebuchadnezzar is long dead. And there's a new king, King Belshazzar. And what happens in this story is the king throws this great banquet, this feast. And basically they all get completely drunk. And they bring in the, the, the things that they'd stolen from the Israelites' temple in Jerusalem. Because when they invaded, they ransacked the temple and they stole everything that they could. So all the precious vases and goblets and ornaments, all the things that had been made to worship God in the temple were stolen. And at this banquet, they bring them in and they pour their wine into these things and they start drinking the wine from these holy vessels and they take them and they take them to their false gods and they begin to worship. This is, this is a desecration. This is like setting fire to a Bible. This is blasphemy, which is why it appears here in this story. And you might think, well, who, what's the big deal about blasphemy? Surely that's just saying a few bad words, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain. What's the big deal with that? Well, blasphemy really at its heart is its, its mis, not just the misuse of God's name, but it's the misuse of his identity, the misuse of God's plan for the world, that he's made us, humanity, to be the bearers of his image, the carriers of his glory. We're supposed to be beacons of hope, a light, and joy, and to declare his glory to the world. That's what humanity, men and women, that's what we're supposed to be. In a sense, we're supposed to be like these holy objects stolen from the temple. We're supposed to display his glory. But yet, in the same way that they, the king takes these holy vessels and uses them to worship his God, so often we can take even our own bodies and use them blasphemously to worship all sorts of false idols, how we use our bodies, how you use 
the image that God's put in you, you can use it for good or you can use it for bad. See, because the background is for this story is that, as we said, we're further along in the story from King Nebuchadnezzar now. And the kingdom is on its last knees. This banquet that they're throwing is, I guess in a way, it's to just try and blot out the memory or the, the, uh, the fear of what's about to happen, that they're about to get obliterated, that their kingdom's about to be wiped away, their kingdom's about to fall apart, they're on the verge of this great defeat, because God's judgment is about to come on them. It's what happens in this story. That If we go back to what we learned in Daniel chapter 2, or if we look ahead of what's going to happen later in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this man representing four different kingdoms, and this stone comes and smashes this image in the kingdom's fall. Later on in Daniel, we learn about these four beasts, again, representing four human kingdoms, which each will fall, and only God's kingdom will last. And the first of these kingdoms that will fall is the kingdom of Babylon. And it's about to happen. So they throw this great banquet, really. There's a story behind this story. So let's read what happens next. We'll read from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. It says, this is Daniel speaking now, but I've heard... Oh, sorry, no, this is the king speaking to Daniel. I've heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and in whose are all your ways you have not honoured. 
Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and pasin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command. Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Hmm. Bit of a dramatic story is taking place here. And what's happened is we see the last creaking days of this kingdom. And I want to be careful how I say this, but often when we look around this city that we live in, this world we live in, and that's what we've been doing in this series, talking about what it means to be a people of God who are resilient, often in the face of a culture that disagrees with the way that we live. And sometimes the world around us can seem daunting and overwhelming and all-powerful, and we can be afraid, terrified, not quite sure how we hold on to what we believe. But the truth is that all the enemies in our culture that stand against God, all the prevailing worldviews that preach a false message, they're all on their knees and will fall and fail. That's what's going to happen. See, because God is, he's sovereign. That's one of the big themes of this book of Daniel. One of the big themes of the whole Bible, that God is sovereign over all of his creation. That means that he will conquer, that his judgment will crush all evil. All abuse, injustice, pain, suffering, all the lies, all the idolatry, all the blasphemy, ultimately will not stand. It will all fall. And God is sovereign in his love, in his victory over sin and death. But for that to be true, for God to be sovereign in his love and in his victory, he must also be sovereign in his judgment and in his justice, which are not very popular things to talk about. Perhaps when you get to those bits in the Bible, you want to skip over those pages. But it's right here in this story, because this is what happens, is that Daniel has to confront the king with this message that this hand is written on the plaster of the palace that his, the king's days are numbered, that the writing is on the wall. That's where that expression comes from. It's from this passage in Daniel. And this idea that God has come as a judge, that he's been weighed in the scales and found wanting, 
That question of judgment is an important question. So we're going to look at that this morning. And there are four questions about judgment I want to look at. First of all, as, as Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus here, how should we stand against a world that often seems opposed to the way we live? Because if you've noticed, if you've been tracking through on this story, the way Daniel responds to King Belshazzar in chapter 5 is different from how he responds to King Nebuchadnezzar through the previous chapters. On one hand, particularly in chapter 4, Daniel almost seems kind of not quite embarrassed, but he, he's careful about and respectful about how he talks to the king. He's almost apologetic about interpreting the king's dream to him and telling what's going to happen to him. And ultimately, King Nebuchadnezzar, although he's humbled, he is then restored. Whereas here, the story is very different. The king here is humbled, but there's no restoration. He dies the next day. And Daniel isn't apologetic. He's very blunt. He even says, oh, this purple, this crown, if you want to make me a ruler, I, say, I don't want it. Give it to someone else. There's no respect anymore. So which, which should we be? I think when it comes to how we engage with our city, I think it's our role to be the Daniel of chapter 4, not the Daniel of chapter 5. There's so much to love and celebrate about the city we live in and the people that live here. And when we see things that are evil, that are ungodly, that are destructive, as Daniel did in chapter 4, we can offer repentance and restoration. We can show them a, a better way to live. It's already what it means to be a, a Christian. It's talked about this in Philippians chapter 1. It says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that wherever I come and see you, or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We want to be resilient and stand firm, living a life manner worthy of the gospel, to display something to the world around us, to show something of his, his true vision of what humanity is supposed to look like. We get to live as, a, as the church, as an alternative community, an alternative society, to say to the world around us, this is how you love one another. This is how you care for one another. This is how you parent. This is how you do marriage. This is how you can manage your finances. This is how you can manage your sex life. We can show to the world around us a better way to live. And particularly when it comes to sex, I just want to talk about that for a moment, because you do get in this story this blasphemous, disuse of these holy vessels. And all around us in the world, we see a blasphemous disuse of these holy vessels, our bodies. And yet the, the sexual ethic of the world around us can often seem very seductive. And often you can feel as a Christian as though you're, you're looking in on the good life 
that to be a Christian is all about self-denial and a kind of a horrible, dull, gray, dour abstinence. It can feel like the good life is over here, and to be a Christian, I just have to sort of, you know, just sort of hide. But when it comes to sex, that's not what it's supposed to be like. Because the reality is it's not about saying, well, I, I can't because I'm a Christian. It's about saying, I'm a Christian, so why would I? Why would I live like that? I've been given a better way to live. God has something better for us. Because there's three lies that the God of sex will tell you. First of all, that it's irresistible. That that urge is irresistible. That's a lie. Secondly, that it will ultimately satisfy you. That's also a lie. It won't. And thirdly, the final and perhaps the most destructive lie is that it won't have any lasting impact on your life. When you think, ah, oh, it's just, just do whatever makes yourself happy. That's the prevailing worldview when it comes to, well, everything, but particularly our, our sex lives. Just do whatever makes yourself happy. It, it won't have any of real effect on your life. It will. What C.S. Lewis wrote about this beautifully in his book, The Screwtape Letters, what you do with your body affects your soul. It just does. In a more deeper, profound way than you'll ever really know. That's why as Christians sometimes, when we pray, we kneel. Because it's a way of just with our whole being saying, God, I, I give myself to you totally. Um, it's just an act of reverence before God. It's why often people here when they're worshiping will throw their arms in the air. Because it's an act of just worship and devotion. We're worshiping God, not just with our mouths or our minds, but with our whole being. And when we do that, even just that simple act of putting your arm in the air, it does something in your soul. When you kneel before God in prayer, it does something to your soul. When you give your body to another human being, that will change you. It will, and no one wants to tell you that, but it's true. And the lies of this world, they're lies. You need to recognize that and recognize that there's just a better way to live. Okay, let's, the second question you might have about judgment is, well, why? Why does judgment exist? First of all, judgment is, you've got to see it as, it's, 
ultimately, in a sense, it's, it's, it's the twin of mercy. Judgment and mercy come together. You can't separate them. The same way if you've ever held a, a compass in your hand, if it's pointing to north, it's also pointing to south. It's the, the same magnetic force that pushes it to indicate one way also brings it another way. You can't have God's mercy without his judgment. They, they come together. Also, what ju- judgment does is judgment brings, it brings order to chaos. We were singing that earlier, that he brings our chaos back into order. One of the ways he does that is through his judgment. Imagine a world without any justice, without any law courts, any judges or juries. Pure anarchy would be chaos. What God does is his justice, his judgment brings order. It brings rightness. God has a passion. He's a holy God who has a passion for things being right. You get that message all through Scripture that the the innocent will be delivered and the guilty will be punished. talks about that in Isaiah. It says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless, which happens to the king in this story. Also, God's judgment brings hope in a world of injustice. It brings hope. Because God is, if you look through Scripture, again, one of the defining messages is that God hears the cries of the voiceless, of the victims, the oppressed, that God is, is on their side. But sometimes he's the only one that's listening to them. And that should bring you, if you ever feel like that, great hope. And as we look upon a world where there's so much injustice, we can have hope that one day there will be justice once and for all. Also, God's judgment might be a tricky one for you to understand, but God's judgment will deliver you from anxiety. It will deliver you from anxiety because what what God's judgment says is that your self-worth, your value is not dictated by what you think of yourself. Because what we do in our world is we, we, I'm sure some of you are probably feeling this in your heart right now, we don't like to be judged. You don't like it when other people judge you, do you? No one likes that. When you have to go to work for your performance review, no one looks forward to those. You don't like to be judged. And particularly, we don't want to be judged by other people, we don't want to be judged by God. That's what our world has said. We don't need other people to judge. I particularly don't need some God in the sky to judge me. Therefore, I won't have God. But if you take away that judgment, if you won't let anyone else judge you, if you particularly if you don't let God judge you, who's going to judge you? Yourself. <laughs> Yourself. That's what we do. We judge ourselves. And that won't go well for you. Because 
you'll realize eventually your flaws and your failings. And you won't know how to process those. And so you'll live constantly trying to, trying to give yourself some kind of value, some kind of worth. It is, it's an act of judgment that you put on yourself day by day. Every time you try and give yourself some value or some worth, you're saying so that when you judge yourself, you'll feel good about yourself. And that will just lead you into more and more anxiety and fear and worry. Also, we need God's judgment because often human justice isn't enough. When you come across stories of just pure horrendous evil, you realize that human justice isn't enough. And in some cases, human justice is, is unbalanced. Sometimes it's too lenient, lets people off. Sometimes it's too harsh, too vengeful. We need God's perfect judgment and justice. And finally, why do we need judgment? Because it's what Jesus is returning to do. That's what it says in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Because you might think, oh, surely, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's the angry, vengeful God of judgment. And Jesus, the God of the New Testament, he's the happy, loving one. But actually, Jesus said himself in John 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's what Jesus is returning to do when he comes again, is to judge humankind. That's what he's coming to do. Now you might think, surely a God of love can just forgive. Why does a God of love need to judge anyone? Surely a God of love can just forgive people. Well the thing is, is that you don't, I don't think you really mean that. I don't think you mean that. Because surely we all want justice when you see true evil you want justice you just do when you see those stories on the news stories of just abuse and horror you know we get desensitized to it so often so often it washes over us but every now and again a story comes up and it just breaks your heart and you think there must be justice we want judgment upon that person. And if we look around us, we'll see that the, really we'd like to think that the world around us is getting better and better and better, but really it's not. The predicament that we find ourselves in is so grave and serious that only a divine intervention can rectify it. That's the problem that we face. And we, we, we need an, an indignant God, a God who passionately cares about judgment. Because if we didn't, 
the theologian Miroslav Volf said this, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. If God just turned a blind eye, just, I'll let that one go. I'm a God of love, so that one doesn't matter. That one doesn't count. He would just become an accomplice, a perpetrator in the evil, and God's not like that. You see, because his, if, if he just ignored it, he would just be a kind of a, it would just be like a weird false sentimentality. It would just be a fake love. You see, because God's salvation, the same way that his mercy and his justice have to come together, his salvation and his judgment come together. Again, Miroslav Volf said, the cross of Jesus Christ is not forgiveness, pure and simple, but God's setting aright the world of injustice and deception. It's what Jesus came to do on the cross. To offer us forgiveness and love, yes, but also to fix a broken world, to put right all that's gone wrong. And the final question about this judgment that we should ask is, well, what does it mean for me? It's a very important question for you. What does it mean for us? Because the reality is, like King Belshazzar, the writing's on the wall. Our days are numbered. We've all been put in the scales and found wanting. We have. It says in Romans chapter three, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says in Isaiah 64, we've all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are faded like a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's a stunning verse. Because it's not just our bad deeds are evil. It says all, all your righteous acts, all the good things, they're just a polluted garment. God, I don't know about you, but even the good things I do, they're so mixed up with bad motives. <laughs> Can you do something? that's completely pure and righteous from your heart and then not feel a little bit proud about it. So much of what we do comes from a polluted heart full of mixed motives. The writer Primo Levi said, compassion and brutality can exist in the same individual and in the same moment, despite all logic. Each of us has a compassion and brutality, a goodness and evil we carry in our hearts. And the wonderful good news is that his judgment is, it's like a, it's a two-edged sword that God punishes his enemies but through the act of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. 
he lets the righteous go free. And that righteousness is not dictated by what we've done, but about the righteousness that he's earned for us. Someone said to me when we, when we came in, we, just before we were about to pray upstairs, someone said, oh, the, uh, there's a, this, this storm is going to get really bad. You know, now we're here, maybe we should just stay here. Let's just lock the doors. If you cycled here, you probably don't want to cycle home. That wasn't fun, and it's going to get windier this afternoon. Let's just huddle down, stay here. But you see, there's a, a storm of God's judgment that the Son has taken upon himself. And now, in a sense, each one of us gets to hide in Christ. That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus. That he, it's not that God's turned a blind eye. It's not that he's just switched off his judgment when it comes to us. But the punishment we deserve, Jesus took for us. It's the wonderful scandal of the gospel, really. And, and the gospel truly is scandalous. And the thing is, if you think the gospel is scandalous because it can forgive that evil person, you've not really understood. It's truly scandalous because it can forgive you for what you've done and said and thought the evil in our hearts. We've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. And yet this grace has come to us to set us free. I want to finish by reading from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. A catechism is like a list of questions and answers that help bring definition to our faith. Let me read this. The question is, what Comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? The answer is, in all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, the very same person who has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for just the wonderful, scandalous grace that you offer to us. That your, your good and right and proper judgment from a holy God we thank you Jesus that you've taken our place that you cancelled the record of debt that stood against us and you've nailed it to the cross that we might go free I pray Holy Spirit you would just come and breathe the wonderful good news of your salvation into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to...
share communion now. The band are going to come and lead us. And this is a wonderful moment for you just to come and just have a moment of thanksgiving to Jesus for what he's done for you. That's why we take this meal every week, to keep on reminding our hearts that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. He's done good things for you, and he sent his son for you. So there's bread and wine at the two tables either side at the back. Whenever you're ready, come and grab some, take it back to where you're sitting. You don't have to wait for a special moment. You can take it whenever you want. This is a meal for those who are believers in Jesus. So if you're not a follower of him or if you're not sure about that, I just ask you to sit that moment of the meeting out. If you'd like prayer for anything at all, then we've got a prayer team down here that would love to pray with you. Particularly if you're feeling any sense of conviction in your heart of sin in your life. That's not a bad thing. Conviction is it's actually God speaking to you. It's the Holy Spirit just nudging you and showing you that there's a better way to live. And there's people that would love just to pray with you and just hear your story and stand with you and help to lead you back to Jesus. Let's worship God together.